Okay, um, my name's Annette, and um, I have a grandson named Aaron who's autistic, who's on the spectrum. Um, Aaron came into my care at the age of two. You're listening to Pomegranate, a podcast for physicians of the RACP. When he was young, uh, look, Aaron and I did a lot of things together, but when he hit puberty, the wheels fell off the bus. He became very aggressive towards me. To the stage where I was being pushed over, couldn't manage. He's a big boy, very tall boy. Um, I became ill, I got cancer. I also had my dad at home. It was just too much. The wheels fell off the bus completely. I'm Mick Cavazzini, and today we'll hear about some of the challenges of caring for a child who has autism and of managing them when they present to the emergency department in a severely distressed state. Yeah, we've had a few episodes of Aaron as coming into hospital. He had an obsession about putting things in his urethra and ending up in the bladder. And I knew when this happened, I had to get him to kids' hospital. I knew I had to get him to Dr Nunn. It was no good going to the local hospital because they couldn't handle him, right? And it was just that total desperation, you know? It was just one trauma after another. And there's been times where I've nearly lost Aaron. Uh, I thought Aaron, if we didn't turn it around, we would lose Aaron for sure. While Aaron has reasonable language skills, it's not easy to determine causes of medical distress in patients who are nonverbal. People living with autism have trouble making sense of social situations, and even of their own emotional state. And their anxiety can be triggered by trivial changes to their daily routine. Psychiatrist Kenneth Nunn has been seeing Aaron for several years. I joined him at the Westmead Children's Hospital in Sydney, along with Annette and Dr Mina Ratan. With ritualistic behaviour, it's often about the need to keep things the same. Any variation from a routine leads to a catastrophic response to, and many times it's a repetitive theme, it may be the contact with a biological parent who they're no longer in contact with. It can be uh, associated with a disappointment, being bullied at school, a, a situation where there's an impending change of placement. All of those normal changes that occur in everyone's life become such a big threat. And these children are living with a sense of threat and a sense of anxiety uh, and that's what I see as the the challenge for parents is how do you shepherd them through the uh, daily changes, constantly giving a a running commentary to the young person and and creating a an, a narrative of the day so the young person can reassure themselves. Yeah, you get very good at, at doing social stories. The other thing that I used to do is change things in a controlled environment and just do it a little bit, just so that he got a feeling for, for some change. Uh, but, yeah, catastrophic. If it was a big change, you knew you knew, you knew that it was going to be a big issue. You would hope that school would go 365 days a year. You'd hate it if, if your carer changed. A lot about different types of food, different textures he couldn't cope with. I can remember I would panic at the lights it's got to stay green, it's got to stay green, it's got to stay green. And if it went red, it would be screaming, you carry on in the, in the back seat, right? If we didn't get into the right car spot, and that would probably be the end of the day. The anxiety just to get like five kilometres. Let's bring in Mina now. 
Mina, can you introduce yourself and tell us how you make sense of these behaviours when a child like Aaron presents to emergency? So my name is Meena Rattan uh, and I have a special interest in neurodevelopmental and behavioral pediatrics. Uh, Currently, I'm working as a um, consultant pediatrician in Campbelltown Hospital. So in emergency uh, department, you have to be a little bit proactive. If you are aware that the patient is coming, then you, you can plan few things already in advance. Uh, Who is the treating physician? So you have an opportunity to get the plan from them because they know the patient best. Um, When they arrive and they sometimes have to wait for several hours, so depending on how distressed they are, you try to, you know, bypass the different processes in emergency and get them to a safe, calm environment. And I think the triage is an issue and... And the carer uh, can become fatigued and frustrated at having to repeat a history over and over again and sometimes even get to the point where you skip things because you think, look, I really just don't want to go down that pathway because when you take a history of what has gone wrong, you're taking a history for the child of their failures from their point of view, Uh, whereas a lot of that can be done in a simple summary. The laminated two-page summary, there's very few complex histories that you can't summarise to a degree that will help. I I was just thinking, coming to the hospital or an ED somewhere else, they sometimes don't believe what you tell them. Um, Until Dr Nunn did a summary for me, a medical summary, and the carers can take that in. They give it to the doctor and they read the signature and they see Children's Hospital logo on the top. All of a sudden, that everything changes. They suddenly think, oh, okay, this, this could be serious because some of the stuff with Aaron is totally wouldn't happen. You know, people think couldn't possibly. Children living with autism often have sensory processing difficulties. The hyper-stimulating commotion of the ED is far from the ideal environment in which to calm them down. If you think what happens in many EDs, it's a naturally chaotic environment, you've got people talking, and you've got large numbers of people called to restrain the child, and the child is absolutely terrified. So what we have to do is we do try and lower the stimulus. We do try to have only one person speaking to them, get everything calm, because our calmness and the lack of stimulation all help. Uh, And they uh, function very well to the visual timetable, what is going to happen. So in that, the steps have been broken down into different pictures. So you can identify that this is the child. Say Aaron has come, so this is Aaron, he's sitting in the emergency department, this is doctor, this is nurse, and they kind of expect that this is going to follow this. And then you show them that uh, picture of tablets, you know, this tablet will be brought in by the nurse and they are going to dispense it to you. So that actually makes it really helpful for them to understand what is going to be the process involved. But I guess that sometimes you really do need the child's cooperation in order to examine them or to get them to take something. Annette, what kind of things can you do to calm Aaron down when he's really agitated? Yeah, to de-escalate it, it's it's, um, 
Yeah, changing the scene for Aaron, um, distraction, I think that's really important. And it takes forever. You know what is going to take a long time. It's like going to his activity for the day. They leave him alone for a while. They plant that seed. Um, and he'll come out after a while and say, oh, I'm ready now. Mm. But if you would have said, get in the car now, you've got five minutes to get in the car, it would not have worked. It would not have. It's pushing the wrong button. If you are anxious and you are scared, these children are very, very sensitive to the non-verbal cues which the physician or the nursing staff are displaying. So the tone of your voice, the eye contact, the reassuring uh, touch, you know, you have to go through these things in a very professional and non-threatening way. One of the things that's helpful is to point out good things and positive things about them. It might be something about their clothing. It might be some little feature. And people are often surprised when we're talking with autistic kids in the middle of a crisis that we're focusing on some rather petty thing uh, and saying how good it is. And, of course, it's fracturing the global catastrophe and, and creating a little moment of focus on something else that enables some de-escalation to occur. So those, those are the first gear of de-escalation, but the background to all is a communication of respect. It has a calming effect. But we also need people to know that there are times when you can be the most skilled person on the planet and you cannot calm the young person because the threat is a threat that they can't identify and you can't identify. Severely distressed patients can be impossible to examine, and even just taking a temperature or measuring blood pressure can increase their anxiety. Mina Ratan says there is some basic information you can glean even without needing to touch the child, and a number of conditions you can look for that most commonly bring them to the emergency room. You can get a lot of useful information just by observing them without even uh, trying to be intrusive uh, and trying to do the proper physical examination. Uh, the way they are, uh, you know, talking, so what is the pace, the tone of the voice. Of course, in a nonverbal child, um, a corroborative history from the carer is very helpful. So you can ask them about any immediate event in form of trauma or any past history in terms of constipation or anything like that. Sometimes it could be uh, just the medication related as well. If a new medication has been changed or it has been increased in dose and patient gets suddenly agitated and uh, the patients who are non-verbal and wheelchair bound, they are sometimes have undetected fractures because uh, they are usually osteopenic. So the their bones are already very weak. So just being uh, you know aware, these are the common things which we screen for. And uh, you'd be surprised how common dentition is an issue. Uh, sometimes one of the things is to look at their teeth. Just yeah, to that's check. absolutely right. Because with autistic children, they have associated sensory things, and sometimes, you know, brushing the teeth could be an issue in itself. So you have to be aware that dental caries or just a dental abscess can be a reason of them getting aggressive. Uh, we're actually looking at the way the person functions as a whole because so often they have limited ways of understanding their own state. If you think about these kids as like a harp with three strings, uh, then whatever the distress is, whatever the concern is, 
they only have a small number of ways of communicating it. For instance, they could have an ear infection. They might tug at their ear or they might... One of the children I had who was blind and mute had a blocked ear. So his only source of communication other than touch was blocked. Um, and so he became extremely aggressive. So if, you've, if you're being hurt, you often want to hurt in order to register that something is wrong, but you're not even sure what it is yourself. And that boy, we had to do everything through feeling. Now, the boy lost control when he, from hitting his head, he dislodged one of his retinas. Uh, so he became more distressed as he lost part of his vision. Or they might, uh, you know, you could have a young boy with a, a torsion of the testis, uh, urinary tract infection. But uh, once a physician is aware of the dozen or so things that they need to look for, they can do that relatively quickly. And we put this together in a chapter in Cameron, the Emergency Handbook of Paediatric Medicine. And again, Mina, what about dolls or picture cards? Can these be used to help the kid point out the location of their pain or the intensity? For pain assessment, we do have uh, visual charts. So varying from showing a slight smile onto, you know, a picture in which the child is crying with tears. You can just ask them to point out what, how they are feeling. Again, depending on the developmental level of the child, giving them an opportunity to draw, to uh, write what they are feeling, to text message, to be on social media with the carer or with the parent. Because even for a non-verbal child, you try to ask the carer what is the way they communicate or they express their pain, their pleasure, their happiness. If the child doesn't want to be touched at all, have you ever had to ask the parent or the carer to palpate the child or something like that? Yeah, of course, we do do this sort of help from the carers as well, though it is not ideal, but sometimes we are able to get the initial examination or workup uh, out of the way. So maybe even just dispensing a medication. So if you have a Panadol in a syringe, and if you pass it to the carer to give it to them, this is as simple as that. So just to be aware that, you know, the carer is a very crucial. It is uh, crucial for any child you examine in general, but very, very important in this specific uh, subgroup. We try to link the thing that the child is distressed about to the reason we're giving the medication. We're not giving this because it's an anti-inflammatory. This will help the pain in your tummy. Or we're giving this not because this is an antipsychotic medication, but because this medicine um, will, uh, helps people to be less upset. And it then has a clear logic behind it, which the young person can understand, and they're much more likely to take it. Sometimes patients with autism are just so distressed, it seems nothing will calm them down enough for the consultation to proceed safely. If the patient is at risk of hurting themselves or others, Ken Nunn says the next step is to try and convince them to take sedative medication. Physiological arousal, we can normally uh, have a chance of talking that down. But once you see that that arousal has flowed over into their motor system, you really have to help them. And then you've got to see, are they still cooperating enough so that they'll take medicine? 
Uh, but if we think that there's a danger to themselves, a danger to others, you know, they're running around out of control, all of those represent heightened risk. We have to take all that very seriously and then we mobilise a rapid, professional, dignified, involuntary sedation. And that has to be done calmly with all the rigour of a cardiac arrest um, in which one person's in charge, one person's talking to the patient and and there isn't um, a babble of voices uh, pounding away at this child who is overstimulated and has never had so much tactile stimulation for the for quite some time. Annette, how does it feel to see this happening to your child? It wasn't great, but it needed to happen. Um, and Aaron was becoming a harm to himself, to me, and it could be to the rest of the, the kids in the ward. He was out of control completely. Oh, look, I had, working as a nurse, I mean, I'd seen mental health patients before, um, but when it's your own it's really hard and yes they've got to be restrained and yes security had to come to that area and it's like my god is he okay everyone's looking at you but yeah I guess I was I just I, I was fearful I was tired and they specialed Aaron and I went home for overnight because I hadn't left him and yeah I needed to do that and someone needed to say you need to go he's safe there's someone here with him were you satisfied that every option had been exhausted? Yes, yes, and I knew that needed to happen for his welfare and for everyone else's welfare, yeah, yeah. Uh, one of my patients uh, turned the fire extinguisher upside down and sprayed all the other patients. And sometimes you can have an out-of-control teenager who's 16 or 17 and 80 kilos and a little baby who's in with febrile convulsions in the same ED... So we, we have to take all that very seriously. I was just adding that for the carers and for the parents, it is a very overwhelming experience. As uh, Annette pointed out, that you need the reassurance that the child is safe. But at the same time, some carers, they feel guilty as well, you know, that they have brought their child to this kind of situation. I think for the parent, the debriefing is really, really important. Uh, so that you can understand what happened. And, and it is, it is traumatic. But even the episodes at home where you get episodes of aggression, you need some lifeline. You need someone to be able to talk to because mm. you become really desperate. Should, should I take hospital? Do we need more medication? You need to, you, need to, you know, talk it through with, with someone. Ken, could you maybe summarise what drugs you would use if you did have to resort to sedation? We use a very simple regime for the most part. If it's a milder disorder and they need some assistance, then we'll generally use quetiapine. If quetiapine isn't up to it and we feel there's aggression involved, we generally use olanzapine. They're the voluntary drugs and the involuntary, we use droperidol and midazolam. So there's two voluntary, two involuntary. And I think I should say that there is... As soon as you've got aggression, you want to make sure that stimulants and antidepressants are reduced. Uh, and uh, that message is now much stronger in the paediatric community, but it still hasn't spread uh, more generally, and that when someone's aggressive, you don't want to be stimulating them. And you've written about the fact that these children can tolerate surprisingly high doses for their body weight? They do. 
autistic children can tolerate sometimes amazing doses bigger than adults um, because of the sheer level of their um, physiological hyperarousal. But as well as that, they've, they're not people that have got poor livers or poor kidneys or uh, poor hearts. They're normally healthier than the people treating them. Uh, so, which is a bit of a problem because they're, they're definitely faster than the people treating them. But I think that the better the environment, the better the anticipation for them, the more controlled the stimulus and the more the, the story of being cared for is made sense of to them, the less we have to use these medications. Speaking of olanzapine, what are some of the psychiatric conditions that autistic patients might also present with? So every condition that occurs in uh, any other child can occur in autism or intellectual disability, only more so. So the what we have are the same conditions, but the threshold to get those conditions is a lot lower. And in Aaron's case, uh, there was a mood disorder as well, which complicated it and and was powerfully driving his behaviour. Um, and so it's difficult enough to manage uh, his initial condition, let alone a condition that is, comes on at the time of puberty. Annette, if Aaron is really upset, how do you distinguish a psychotic episode from distress to real physical pain? I guess you think about um, the onset and what's caused it and the history around, yeah, sometimes the psychotic might be to do with a behavioural issue, an anxiety issue. So, yeah, I think you can tell the difference. I think I can tell the difference. I know Aaron very well. While Aaron was an adolescent, there was some continuity of his medical care and home care. But when he turned 18, Annette, as his grandmother, had to struggle to get guardianship status so she could continue to make the best decisions for his treatment. The abrupt transition into adulthood can be deeply unsettling for families as the safety net of the paediatric system falls away, and there is less expertise available at dealing with neurodevelopmental conditions. It's a cliff. Yeah. It's a cliff unless someone like Annette is taking the initiative and there's some sort of medical oversight and backup, but it is a cliff, isn't it? And for most of the kids. I think from moving into to, um, adulthood and, and changing, you know, psychiatrist and not having a paediatrician anymore is, is frightening. And suddenly I've got to tap into the public system for Aaron because it's got to be sustainable. Like, I'm not going to be paying for Aaron's health care forever no. and I'm not going to be here forever. So there's a lot of hurdles that we've got to go through now. I think that's a point that... The transition to, to adult care is one of our biggest concerns because the continuity of care is not as great in the adult system as it is in the child system. The, the uh, familiarity with working in collaboration with a carer is not as prominent in the adult system as it is in the child system. And I think the biggest issue for us is that uh, those physicians that are, feel comfortable with neurodevelopmental disordered patients grown up. But this framework of transition needs to happen. There needs to be more interaction between 
you know child adolescent services as well as the adult services so that the overlap process is more smooth if they are high functioning our aim is that as much as possible that they are capable of doing independent living um ways to manage their medications you know having reminders or supportive care from the person taking over which is usually a general practitioner you can just liaise with and not everybody needs a adult psychiatrist and the care for all of these children is absolutely teachable and it's not restricted to psychiatry it's nursing it's general medicine it's general pediatrics having Mina and others like her who have absorbed the necessary stuff from psychiatry to integrate it into their general medical care is just a wonderful uh, development that was not around 30 years ago when we didn't realize that there was a whole spectrum of care needed and i think a really important thing is that you have that multidisciplinary team and you all work together and it's we're there for Aaron and i and i think there is a light at the end of the tunnel you know you're going through it and you think oh, i can't do this anymore i can't do this anymore but there is a light at the end of the tunnel and you know what Aaron was put in a house with quite a lot of restriction around him you know the perspex windows everything was tied down and they obviously thought Aaron was going to be quite violent in that house and there was another young person who was similar to Aaron and i said oh god how's this going to go you know what's it going to be like and you know what they were just marvelous they turned him around and i watched the way they handled aaron and the other young man it was respectful it was just yeah it was it was lovely so now aaron has turned 18 um and 3 years down the track he might be able to live in it and i hope he will a villa care there in the middle his own little area uh so you know that's aaron's future Many thanks to Annette for sharing her deeply personal story and also to Kenneth Nunn and Minakshi Ratan for their contribution to this episode of Pomegranate. The views expressed are their own and may not represent those of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. For resources mentioned in the podcast, visit the website at racp.edu.au/pomcast. Physicians in Sydney can contact Dr. Ratan about regular workshops on management of behaviourally disturbed children. Physicians in New Zealand should look up the Health Passport system, which helps patients with complex needs carry their medical history with them. At our website, you can also claim CPD credits for listening, or send us an email with your feedback. Please share the link with your colleagues and join the conversation using the hashtag #RACPPod. I'm Mick Cavazzini and I hope you've enjoyed the program.